It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hi again, everyone. Back at it here on the Airhead 247 podcast. If you're tuned in on the release date, which is the weekend of Friday, September 22nd, Turns out I'm at Todd Trumbor's 100th BMW Motorrad anniversary event in Pennsylvania. We'll be recording interviews as well as some of the events there for rebroadcast on the program here. If you are not able to attend, we should have some great highlights and interviews to share with you in the coming weeks. Good time to say thanks to Todd for inviting me to the event and for all he's done over the years hosting these wonderful anniversary events. If you're curious to see what you missed, you can visit motorod100.com to learn more about the event. All right, this week, it's a visit with Duck Cook. He's president of the Airheads Beamer Club here in the United States. Earlier this year, some of you may recall, the club underwent a structural change that caused some cylinders to get hot, maybe even overheat a little bit, so to speak. So we'll chat with Duck about that, but also, and maybe more importantly, we'll discuss what clubs like the ABC mean to the lasting legacy and popularity for the 247 Airhead. William Plam, glad to have him back this week for another Tech Talk episode. Our topic this week, aftermarket modifications. want to say thanks again to all the wonderful Survivor Bike submissions we've been getting. I've been in contact with some of you and will continue to do so as this project rolls on. You can write us with your Survivor Bike or anything. The email address Airheads, with an S, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Also want to let you know we have what I hope will be some interesting programs on the horizon over the coming months. That includes new conversations with Leo Goff, Rick Jones at Motorrad Electric, another visit with Ted Porter, and some interviews I've done while buying and repairing a few bikes this past year. So stay tuned for that in the coming weeks and into the new year. All right, off to an undisclosed location for a chat with Airhead Beamer Club president, Duck Cook, on the Airhead 247 podcast. Okay, we're on the line with Duck Cook. And Duck, first off, thanks for taking some time to visit with me today. Where on earth am I calling? Where are you? I am currently in Oglethorpe, Georgia, which is middle Georgia, about an hour Southwest of Macon. Okay. Now, is that home for you? You're traveling? Uh, what's what's the deal? That is our home base. Uh, our motorcycle shop and bookstore are here, but we live in our RV and uh, have spent the last seven months traveling mostly east of the Mississippi, although we have taken some trips into uh, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas, and, and plus a uh, three-week stint in Scotland, obviously without the RV. 
Wow. Okay. So uh, you're just resting up after uh, a lot of traveling. Yeah. Stop to do some maintenance on the rig and uh, take care of some loose ends, you know, doctor's appointments, uh, vet appointments for our traveling companion, Moses, and uh, just kind of get things together uh, and then get ready to go to the next event here in September. Good. Now, not to go too deep into your RV and the RV lifestyle, but uh, do you carry a motorcycle with you? We do. We have a toy hauler, and uh, which motorcycle we carry depends on where we think we're going at any given time. Um, We uh, either carry a small, just a small bike to get around town, um, or we take one of the the bigger airheads. We've got an R80RT and an R80-7, so... And that's if you're going to be sort of stationary for a bit and want to take maybe some overnight or longer trips or something like that. Yeah, if we get into some good, maybe up into the mountains where there's some good touring or or if we're going to go somewhere where there's going to be some group rides and we don't want to be be the little guy in the group, you know. (laughs) Yes, I, I get it. I get it. So one thing I do want to ask you about right off the bat is, so you've got also still or operating vintage motors so tell me about that i mean let me just preface that by saying i did not do you know this most in-depth research before we chatted but what little bit i was able to discern about vintage motors is obviously you've got a love affair for vintage bikes airheads is part of that but also a number of other different brands and, and styles and rides Correct. We don't exactly uh, specialize in airheads. Down here in middle Georgia, there's not a lot of them around, quite honestly. Mm. Uh, We do pick up some airhead work uh, east of the Mississippi, and people bring us uh, their vintage Japanese uh, cruisers or touring bikes. And we actually do a lot of service work on Harleys uh, because we're closer uh, to, it's an hour away to the nearest Harley dealer. Oh, wow. Somebody needs an oil change or a couple of tires put on real quick. And uh, we scaled our operations back from what we were doing uh, prior to December 31st of last year. Uh, basically, I'm retired, and we're probably just going to work on our own projects and a few specialized things uh, from now on. Got it. Got it. So what you're saying is don't call with the transmission job. Please don't. <laughs> okay. I, I will disappoint you. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and then, so yeah, so that's becoming, I guess, for lack of a better term, more of a hobby shop for you. Is there anything uh, currently uh, of note you're working on on the lift or a project you've got going on, airhead or non-airhead related? Um, I think our, our next real project is going to be mounting a sidecar up to an R100. Uh, I picked up a sidecar that is uh, pet-specific when we were oh, at good. Harbor. Vintage Fest last year, and we have decided that uh, mounting it to an R100 would be the best choice for us, and I happen to have one back here that uh, is ready to be refurbished and, and have a hack hung on it. Now, you told me your dog's name, but I forgot already. Moses. Moses. Okay. So have you, have you had a discussion with him about him about the uh, sidecar? Moses likes to travel. He likes to travel on a golf cart. He'll get on a paddle boat and go out in the lake with you. He's happy enough to sit in the truck all day long while we're moving. Uh, and we've had him in sidecars 
not mine, but uh, a couple of open Euro-type sidecars yeah. when we were at Barb. Now, so pet-specific. So that that's going to be a little bit different than a standard sidecar. You're going to make some uh, alterations or considerations for Moses. No, it actually is a Watsonian Squire FQ1, and behind the seat, instead of having a trunk, or just a sloping back, it has a glassed-in, plexiglassed-in area with a roof over it for your dog to travel in. Oh, okay. So he, he could literally sort of just lay down and relax in there as well? Yep. It's a, he's a small dog. He's about 35 pounds. So okay. Not putting a St. Bernard in there or anything, but <laughs> okay. there's plenty of move around uh, and, and lay down and look around and be happy. I got you. Okay, so yeah. There's, I guess, two sort of ways to think about that. One is maybe a larger size dog, which I might have been thinking of, where you put on the doggles uh, and they sort of sit upright in the sidecar. But this case, kind of a smaller dog, probably a little bit more stationary and lying down and uh, just enjoying the, the scenery and wondering when are we going to stop to take a leak kind of thing. Yeah, pretty much. You know, all the smells going by and all the all the. <laughs> on the outside okay all right okay so i as i do with a lot of folks just like to get sort of started out find out what was your basic introduction to motorcycles duck you were a young man like most of us probably i'm guessing how how did you get bit by the bug initially well initially uh, when i was 16 my brother-in-law and sister whom i lived with and his little brother, we all decided that we would like to go dirt bike riding in the forest trails in northern Michigan. So my brother-in-law searched around and found a couple of Suzuki's that were for sale, a 250 and a 90. And I bought the 250, and uh, his little brother, a couple years younger than I am, bought the 90. And then my brother-in-law bought a XL250 Honda, a 1972 model, that was a carryover. And uh, here, a side note of that is, when I was in Michigan this summer, after owning the bike for 50 years, he gave it to me. Wow. But I carried that down from Michigan, uh, and I'm not going to refurbish it, but I'm going to mechanically restore it and ride it. Wow, that's amazing. It's in the family all these years. 50 years. I had the original title for it. He bought it mm. June 28th of 1973. <laughs> wow. That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So what was your introduction then uh, to Airheads? Well, uh, a buddy and I were, were doing some buying and selling of Triumphs and Harley-Davidson's back in the early 90s. Okay. And we look at some Triumphs that a, a family of brothers had. Three brothers and their dad had a bunch of British stuff. And we went to look at it. And uh, on the way out behind a door with no back tire on the wheel and leaning haphazardly against the wall was a R60-5. And I just offhandedly said to the guy, hey, what do you want for that? Because I knew a fella in town who was not at the time a friend of mine, but ended up being a very close friend. Uh, I knew he was into the BMWs, and I thought maybe I could sell him some parts off it or something. So we picked it up, and uh, I carried it home, and I called this fella, and I said, Dale, I've got a BMW out here. I want to come out and look at it. So he came out and looked at it, and we talked about it. It had dropped a valve and hold the piston on the one side, so it was, you know, the motor was blown up. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, rather than fix this one, he said, I'll sell you another motor for $300. I 
uh, well, a running bike is always worth more than a than a bike that's just for parts. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, and I put the motor in it, and long story short, I still have it. Was it another R60 motor? Uh, no. Well, after about a year and a half of riding it, I said to Dale, I said, um, I think I'd like to rebuild the original motor so I have a matching number of bikes. So yeah, there you go. Swapping again with the R60 Flash 6 motor I bought from him for a head and a cylinder and some cleanup, and uh, that's the end of the story. I still have the bike back here uh, in my shop. Wow, good for you. So I'm sensing a theme here in that uh, the cooks like to keep a lot of the motorcycles they buy. Uh, yeah, my, my wife says this buying and selling thing seems to be more buying than selling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, so um, a little bit more about that bike. Uh, you still have it. So what, what year was it? Uh, what color is it? Uh, sort of what's the originality status on it? Have you done a lot of modifications on it otherwise? I hit, it's a 72 R60 slash 5 with a toaster tank and toaster side panels. Okay, black? Hit, it's black, yep. Uh, it's uh, not had any modifications done to it other than the fact it's got a set of Khalifa saddlebags on it. Those are the ones that have the cutout for the mufflers. Oh, so yeah. A little bit over. Mm -hmm. I helped my wife's short legs on the back, but it's a stock seat. Um, periodically, I'll put a, uh, a wick, some fairing on it. Um, so we can cut the wind in the, in the wintertime, but for the most part, it's a 100% stock bike. And what's the current mileage? Oh, we've rolled the speedometer over twice. It had about 90,000 miles on it when it dropped the uh, the piston, the valve. Wow. Uh, we've, we've rolled it over twice since then, and then the speedometer broke. <laughs> uh, and, and I have not pulled, pulled it out to have it replaced. I'll probably send it out to Rick Borth at some point. And uh, have him do his magic on it, and uh, it's probably going to be our next RV bike because it's nice and short and fits in the back of that toy. Sure, sure. So, wow. Okay, so you're so you're saying over two hundred thousand miles on it. Um, I'm sure. Wow. So, what about some of the major components that have needed uh, or not needed uh, any major repairs? So. Um, the engine aside, transmission, final drive, uh, things like that. How are, how, how have those held up and what, what have you done to those, if anything? The transmission is the original transmission, as far as I know, since I've gotten it. Wow. The rear, the original, and it's starting to get pretty worn. But again, I picked up a perfect new old stock one at Barber about five years ago. Uh, it was in a bunch of Triumph and Harley parts on a trailer. And now I picked up this new old stock rear drive, correct gear ratio and everything for 150 bucks. And, then, and that will be upgrade when we do this. We'll put, of course, a spline cup in the wheel and then put the new drive on. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, all the uh, switch gear, hands, uh, the thumb switches and stuff have held up pretty well. You haven't had to replace any of those? I have not replaced any of those. I did have to do a little wiring repair in the headlight because mm -hmm. when we lived in Michigan, uh, some mice made a nest in there, uh, which I discovered when spring came, and uh, I didn't have a horn uh, or turn signals, I think it was. And I, so I pulled the headlight out and was greeted with the traditional ball of fuzz. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. 
Yeah, that happens a lot. Wow, that's I have to say, uh, Duck, that's pretty impressive. All those miles uh, on that bike, and you've kept it all these years. Uh, you mentioned uh, while we're talking about airheads and, and what you have, you mentioned the two uh, that you carry around in your trailer, the R80, the R100. Anything else uh, airhead uh, related in the in the cook garage or shop? Um, yeah, I've got a couple of R75 slash uh, fives uh, in various states of disrepair. I've got a couple of R90 slash sixes, one of which is undergoing a complete restoration uh, with a new painted frame and everything. Uh, slow projects. Uh, shop work usually takes precedence over my own projects, which is one of the reasons we're real happy to kind of step back from the commercial business. Yeah, I bet. And anything sort of that you've been hunting for a while, a bike that you've wanted to maybe get in the garage or get in the collection or, or, or ride uh, that you haven't been, haven't been able to pick up yet? No, I kind of like a single, an R25 yeah. or an R20. But for, for us, it it's, would really be just a toy more than something that we would ride. Uh, Kevin Reimer in Florida's got a couple of them, and they're just a hoot to ride. It's like riding a motorized bicycle. They're quiet, they're smooth, they're light. Uh, and if one came along at the right price at the right time, I would probably pick one up. Yeah, I, I could see that being a great sort of little uh RV complimentary vehicle for you, something to have to buzz around the, the campsite that's not going to annoy the neighbors too much or need to make a little zip into town and get a, a little, some groceries or something, uh, and easy to just sort of whip that bike around, get it in uh, in your trailer and whatnot. So, all right. So, noted, uh, Duck is looking for a single. Uh, so, we'll see how that goes. All right. So, let's talk uh, Airheads Beamer Club. Um I've been a member for a little while now. I can't, I can't say how long, um, and I just have to right off the bat. One of the things um, I really like about the the club, and I haven't had an opportunity to take advantage of both of these, but there the tech days, and then uh, I think what's called the super tech, where that's in the winter usually, and you have some special guests and talk a lot of practical theory about maintenance and airheads and all that kind of stuff. So those are two aspects of the club uh, I, I, I really enjoy and find useful uh, as a member. Well, how, tell me about just your basic introduction to the club. Obviously, you're the president now. You started out, I guess, as a member, just like everybody else. I did. I started out as a member in 1996 uh, when we were living in Michigan. My wife and I and our two children uh, took our, our uh, station wagon and uh, my Slash 5 and my kids' two Honda mopeds to the Morganton, North Carolina rally. That was our first rally. We went down and uh, camped on a sun-baked flat down there with 5,000 of our closest friends. And uh, just before the rally ended, we heard some people complaining about the guys with the big tent who were complaining, who were making all the noise and staying up all night. And they were acting like a bunch of Harley riders, and that's a quote. The one woman said to the other, and I told <laughs> her, I said, where are these people at? And they told me, and I went up there, and that was my introduction to the Airheads. And uh, I've not looked back. It's been a wonderful organization for me. Um, when I moved to uh, Georgia, uh, Nathan Mende had uh, yeah. been the marshal down here. 
and he uh, decided that he was ready to step down. Uh, he and I had kind of discussed it, and he discussed it with some other people. Uh, so be, I became the Georgia Air Marshal. And I'm trying to think, but that was probably eight years ago. I'm not exactly sure. And uh, then at some point, Charlie Smith decided that he was done being on the board of the Airheads, and I'm in Region 5, and he was in Region 5. And they asked me if I would like to run for the board, and that's how I ended up on the board. And then the board members, the five board members, elect their own leadership, and so I was elected. And I, I'm proud and, and somewhat humbled to have just recently been elected uh, for my third two-year term. So uh, I will age out after this, and there will be new faces on the board in my spot and a couple of other spots, but uh, that's where we stand now. Okay. We're committed to bringing you this podcast free of charge, never a paywall or subscription fee. And to help us do that, we rely on the support of our sponsors. We're happy to let you know the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America are continuing their free one-year digital membership promotion for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The only caveat here to qualify for this offer is that you are either new to the MOA or have not experienced the MOA as a member in the last three years. This offer is good for riders across the globe. So if you're listening to this now, no matter where you are on planet Earth, the offer is valid for you. Digital membership includes 12 issues of the BMW Owner's News, an annual copy of the BMW Owner's Anonymous book, full access to the MOA website with forums, flea market, and of course, all the money-saving discounts, and roadside assistance plans. To join, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEADS247 to register for your free one-year digital membership. It's a quick and easy way to support our efforts here, and of course, it's free. Look for that website and code in the About section of this program. As always, thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America for their support with the podcast. Now back to our chat with Duck Cook. Now, if I recall, the club was founded uh, in, right around 1990, if I'm correct. And coincidentally, I think that was the same year I got my first Airhead, a short wheelbase uh, slash five uh, 750. Uh, right around that time. So uh, was that? So I'm correct on the date. And then who was the actual founder of the club? Whose idea was it uh, to get this thing going? Well, B. Jan Hoffman um, came up with the idea, and he and uh, Al Sloan uh, put the thing together. There were a couple of other founding members. I don't recall who member number two is, but uh, B. Jan Hoffman is member number one, and Al was member number three. Uh, some, of course, people have aged out and passed on, so I don't know them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the club actually spread pretty fast because of the philosophy of it and the club canons that they work at. Uh, from I believe they really started the founding date in 1992 is where, where Jan says okay. that was started at. And so what, uh, you may or may not know the exact count, but what's the current member status today? We're at about 2,250 members. Wow. Worldwide. Okay. 
Wow, that's impressive. Most of those, I'm going to imagine, are North America, Canada, uh, continental, U.S., and elsewhere. But so you do have some international members. We do. We we have some active groups uh, in uh, in Australia. Um, we've got some folks up in Canada. Um, we recently talked to some people in England and Scotland. We had a air marshal in England for a long time, and uh, he passed, and nobody had really stepped up to take his spot. Uh, so we're, we're lacking an air marshal in a couple of countries. We're actually at, uh, lacking some air marshals in some states as people's um, lifestyle changes or they age out. Um, they quit riding. Your, but once you're an airhead, you're always an airhead. Just because you can't ride anymore doesn't mean you're evicted sure. from the club. Yeah, that makes sense. We got the, the relationships you develop, uh, friends and things like that, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess recent changes aside, technology aside, uh, how things have moved and evolved uh, otherwise, has the club changed much over the years or has it remained pretty solid in, in why it exists and how it exists? I like to think that it's remained pretty true to the canons. Uh, if you read them, uh, I don't have a copy of them right here in front of me. I could dig them up. But uh, it basically it focuses on the collective group. Uh, airheads uh, appreciate fact over fiction, friendship over friction. Airheads like to maintain their own uh, machines. Airheads are earthy people. Um, they don't take themselves, life, or anything too seriously. Um, we like to share time and parts. Uh, that's evidenced by tech days and mini rallies uh, and uh, just barley therapies and coffee therapies and things like that. I, I really think we have remained true to the canons. That's pretty good. You rattled those off the top of your head uh, quite effectively. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Um, yeah, so one thing I want to back up, uh, you keep bringing up the term air marshal, which, by the way, it's a great term. Um, for uh, somebody who's got a leadership role in a particular region, what exactly does that in entail? Well, an air marshal is specific to a state. Okay. Or in, a, in the case of the overseas folks, a country, uh, you know, a smaller country like Germany or England might only have one air marshal. Uh, they're responsible for helping to coordinate club activities. They're not responsible personally to put them on although many air marshals do host events, tech days and campouts and things like that. But they are the point person for the activities in their state. And hopefully they're building membership and promoting the club in a positive way uh, and getting out to meet people uh, at various events, bike nights, things like that. And, uh, you know, being just being a helper to somebody who didn't know where to uh, – to start to, say, put a tech day on at their house. Like if you wanted to put a tech day on but you weren't sure how it was going to happen, you could call your air marshal and go, hey, uh, I want to have a tech day on December 14th. What do we do? And they would be able to guide you through that process. Yeah, that's one of, as I mentioned, sort of my philosophy and relationship with the club, uh, the tech day and the super tech day, I just think are really great concepts Tell me about how, if you can, if you know, how those tech days sort of started and, and evolved, and are you still active in them in your area? Do you travel to some? And I guess 
for me, I think it's one of the, you know, sort of touchstones or bedrocks uh, of what the Airhead uh, Beamer Club is all about. Hey, tech days are exactly the bedrock of the club. That's where you can meet new people. Uh, you can learn about your machine. You can share the knowledge that you've learned with other people. I don't know how they originated or where the first one was held. Uh, I would assume it was probably somewhere out in California where the club was founded. But they uh, they have spread like wildfire. Uh, pretty much every state has one, uh, if not every year, uh, at least once every couple of years. Some places, like Florida, uh, has them regularly. Of course, Florida's a big state, like California. There's a lot of folks down there riding year-round, and uh, several people host tech days. Uh, some of them have involved into tech, tech weekends, where you show up on Friday and you leave on Sunday. So yeah. it's like any mini almost. Yeah. People tag in things that you would not believe. They've, they've been in a barn or a shed for, for decades, and at the end of the weekend... Uh, somebody with a big smile on their faces riding around the yard on the thing. <laughs> yeah, I went to my first one in Kansas City. Uh, Joe Brinkman is the air marshal there. And yep. another fella, uh, Scott, who I know, I can't remember his last name, Scott in Missouri. I know him from Adventure Rider. Anyway, they had sort of said, hey, you know, you're close by in Arkansas. Have you been to one of these events? Come and see what it's all about. So I went last last year, last winter, uh, for the first time. And my experience, first of all, it was fun. I enjoyed meeting the guys, seeing the bikes, hanging out and talking. I did have some work to do uh, on a motorcycle. I, I needed my wheel bearings change, which that doesn't happen all the time. But uh, the bike I had bought, just as an aside, I was checking them. The front wheel bearings were kind of rusty, and so I just thought the prudent move would be to just replace them on the front and wheel, uh, front and rear. Anyway, so I thought, okay, this might be an interesting opportunity to go to a tech day, do this job, which I had not done before, by the way, uh, replacing the bearings in this context. And, Ducko, here's, here's what I have to say about it. I, I found it difficult to work. Uh, on my motorcycle in that f context, in that format, only because I'm so used to doing it in my garage by myself. I was di really distracted uh, and found it hard to focus. And not that I wouldn't go to another tech day, but I would just, for, personally, it, to me, it would be more of a sort of ride to it, rally, hang out, have some beers, I didn't find the actual working on the motorcycle the most enjoyable experience uh, for me. But, and that's just one man's opinion. Okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that because it's a, a lot of fun when you can get a couple of three people of like mind to work on. Yeah. Uh, we have run into folks who don't want, they want the advice, but they don't want people, you know, holding hold the other end of the ranch or anything. They really want to just put all themselves. Um, and that's fine, too. Yeah. Uh, but there, then there are people that, like I say, they drag a machine in, they don't know anything about it, and they need all the help they can get. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and believe me, I'm not being critical of it. It's more of a situation where I've been sort of isolated on an island where I'm at in rural Arkansas here for the past 10 years, and that's just how I've been used to working. 
uh, on a sure. motorcycle. And I, you know, I've had a friend or friends come out, you know, on occasion and assist. Um, but yeah, it was, I just found it, uh, it was, it was strange. Not that I couldn't do it, uh, or I wouldn't do it again, but I just remember thinking, gosh, you know, I hope, uh, you know, I, I just didn't have the opportunity to work at the pace I, I normally would have. Uh, uh, but all that being said, I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed meeting the guys there. I plan to go to another one uh, in Kansas City at some time. It was a lot of fun. In fact, uh, I did a lot of interviews there. And here coming up soon, I'm going to do sort of a retrospective on that, uh, talk with Joe and some of the other guys that were there that we got a chance to meet. So there'll be a nice sort of um, episode uh, on my experience uh, at the Tech Day. The other thing, mentioning tech, is the Super Tech uh, weekends. That seems like something I would, for personally speaking, a little more up my alley. That's more of like a weekend, if I'm using the term right, sort of a, a weekend uh, master class where you've got different uh, guest mechanics uh, and things like that that go over a lot of different topics. I haven't been to one of those, but tell me about the concept of the Super Tech Weekend. The Super Tech Weekend, as, as you surmised, uh, delves much deeper into the components and the mechanics of our machines. Uh, instead of having, you know, Joe Blow, who's been riding for 10 years as a, as a novice and doing his own maintenance, helping you out, you have some of the best brains in airhead dumb uh, telling you how this stuff works. And the important part to me is always why it works that way. Mm -hmm. Why do we need it that way? And uh, it shows you all the little idiosyncrasies that you might miss. Uh, and as you said, goes into great depth about the, these things. Uh, and these are the minds of the people that, uh, that you're aware of that present that have been doing this for decades and are just well-known in, in the field. Uh, we call them our gurus. Our gurus go up there and do presentations and stuff. And it's very well-organized. It's a little higher-end event, staying in motels instead of camping in somebody's yard, uh, eating in restaurants instead of eating off somebody's grill. Uh, but the knowledge, uh, everybody that's attended one has just come away saying that they have learned so much and thoroughly enjoyed it. And, of course, there's many people who, who uh, repeat the performance of going to SuperCheck to continue to learn this stuff and expand their knowledge base in detail. Do you know what the one is for 2023? When and where? Do you know that yet? Uh, it's I do not. Okay. It's not. It's not a formal function of the club. It's adjunct to the club. Got it. Uh, it's club members, but it's not sponsored by the club. Okay, fair enough. And so, yeah, I can remember seeing uh, here over the past few years in the in the magazine or newsletter or online. Uh, I remember William Plam was there. I think Anton Largadera was there uh, recently and, and some, you know, other folks I'm probably forgetting. Uh, but yes, uh, that's something I'm going to keep an eye out on coming up, uh, for this year. And I really hope to plan, uh, plan to attend. So everybody out there listening, if that sounds like something you are interested in, uh, keep an eye on the ABC forum, or if you're a member, obviously that, that's, that information will be, uh, in the magazine at some point, I would imagine. No. Probably. Okay. Uh, one thing we want to mention here is that it's, yeah. uh, attendance is limited. Right. Not open. So when the seats fill up, the seats are filled up. So if, if you're thinking about it and you see the notice, 
you need to act on it. Jump on it. Well, I'll be sure to do that this time around. Uh, okay, uh, Duck. So, rally. So, we've talked about uh, tech days, super tech. Now, sort of another function of the club is the rally. Um, you've got, I guess, to a degree, lo- local rallies. There's, uh, is there an ABC national rally that you hold separate uh, from the MOA? There, there is not at this time, although that has been discussed. Okay. Uh, Airheads Beamer Club Incorporated sponsors two rallies per year only, and that is the BMW MOA National. Uh, we provide uh, a tent and uh, all the creature comforts of home, food, drink, uh, camaraderie, uh, and at the National BMW RA Rally, uh, the same thing. We rent a tent, we bring in grills, and we feed people. It's a it's a real nice social and learning event. But those are our two national rallies inside of a national. Got it. There are rallies. There are local rallies, uh, and uh, it, you'll see a lot of attendance uh, in those for people who can't travel all the way across the country. You know, this year we were lucky. My wife and I, everything was on the East Coast. Uh, we'll be going to the uh, BMWRA in September and uh, being up there hosting with uh, Ronnie, the uh, West Virginia Air Marshal, and some of the other volunteers that step up. Uh, next year uh, we're going to have to travel to Redmond, Oregon for the BMW National. That's going to be a haul. That is so that'll... That- probably take most of our summer by the time we wander uh, across the mountains and get out there and then wander down the coast of California across the southwest uh, back to Georgia, which, by the way, we're not coming back to Georgia in July like we did this year. <laughs> it's a little toasty down there, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little warmer than we expected, even though we've been living here. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, yeah, so let me backtrack and say when I lived in Memphis – for a number of years. I did go to a couple uh, airhead rallies. There was one, um, oh gosh, man, my memory is really slipping. There was one uh, near a dam, uh, best rallies, best dam rally site or something, I think they called it, play on words. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Memphis. And I, I went to those as a non-member. I knew some guys that were in the club and, you know, would just go show up for a night. Um, but then, yeah, so the national rally this year. So I'm going to ask you this question. I know the answer. I'm just curious if you want to uh, bring it up. And if not, that's fine. But I talked with Ted Moyer uh, from the MOA a couple weeks ago and said, you know, how the we were talking about a few other things, how the rally go, how the airhead tent go. And he said, boy, we really it was an eventful. Uh, we had an eventful year in the uh, airheads tent this year do you care to recall what happened well we we just we were overwhelmed with the number of people who came to the airhead tent uh we the first thursday night we were going to feed hot dogs and we had 120 hot dogs and we thought we could make two meals out of them yeah uh we barely got one meal out of 120 hot dogs I know that on Friday night and Saturday night, both nights, we fed over 100 people each night out of the airhead tents. Uh, now, these people that came were not all members. Uh, we, they were very generous in their donations, and we were very happy to do it. But, but at the end of the weekend, we were pretty exhausted. It was a, just a beehive of activity the whole weekend. 
Um, one thing that uh, we talked about is that uh, uh, at the MOA is that uh, the Airheads are a unique group. We have a culture all our own. It's not necessarily the same as a lot of the mainstream BMW riders, BMW MOA members. We're just a little bit different. We're we're kind of old school hippies in a lot of ways. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, when the woman said they were acting like a bunch of Harley riders, I was pretty sure I'd found my people. So <laughs> we party a little bit harder, and we might party in a little different way than some people do. Uh, but it's all in good fun, and we try to keep it safe and be as responsible as we possibly can under the circumstances. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll leave it at that. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2-Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2-Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2-Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two. Boxer2Valve.com. Well, it's time for another visit with William Plam. Our conversation this week, aftermarket modifications for your Airhead 247. Back on the line with William Plam from Boxer2Valve for another edition of Tech Talk. And something I think we all think about and discuss among ourselves and maybe even a debate among ourselves from time to time is aftermarket modifications and upgrades on your 247 airhead. So, William, let's, let me start this out by saying there's a lot of different things to modify, upgrade on an airhead. And the nice thing about these motorcycles is even though they go back uh, to 1970 and production ended at 1995, there's still a very robust aftermarket parts, uh, modifications available, improvements on particular parts available to the rider. So that that's the good news there. And that really makes uh, the enjoyment and owning these motorcycles a lot, uh, a lot easier because of that. So uh, everybody has a different take on modifications and upgrades. And let's just start this way. Uh, and generally speaking, as a general overview, if you're going through a motorcycle, for instance, let's say uh, like you did on the uh, 90-6 in the video series uh, a few years back, or if you're going to be doing a new video series, if you're going to take the time and go through and do a sort of mechanical refresh on a motorcycle, are there particular components 
that you are going to stray from the traditional BMW part and put an upgrade on there or a, or a more modern part as a general rule? Well, I'm, I'm pretty old school when it comes to these bikes and really like a, as original as possible um, for the most part. Well, the, the one place that I have deviated uh, is, is on some of the bikes uh, is to um, change the brake rotors. Um, brakes are really important, and uh, I like the, the floating rotors can, can be a nice uh, improvement if the rotors are kind of worn. Uh, I know there's a really a lot of uh, really good aftermarket um, ignition and charging systems. Um, I know EME has some really cool stuff that, in that department. It's not something that, uh, that I usually mess with myself, but um, I, I see the, the – um, I don't know much about it, honestly. We, I'm sticking with the stock stuff, but I know that that, that, that could be a really big upgrade, really important upgrade, and I think those are quality components that they offer. So I would say that. But for, for me, honestly, it's been mostly stock stuff, and I have my opinion um, that even just new is an upgrade in many cases. <laughs> That's a great point. You yeah. know, I never really thought about it that way. So, like, if your seat's all clapped out, you know, you don't, it doesn't need to be any different than the original, but the new one goes a long way. Um, there's not as many, I mean, there's still, there's still a robust uh, offering. It's nothing like I think it used to be back when the bikes were, were newer or newish, you know. I don't know a lot of the stuff, if it's still um, available. I, it could be like, like back, you know, years ago, the triple clamps was something that, We'd get rid of that 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 steel plate and get one that like San Jose BMW used to make one and it was uh, made out of billet aluminum and actually clamp around the top and some of the fork braces that also San Jose had and Telefix and I don't know if if maybe you know Darren if some of that stuff's even still available anymore from anywhere but those yeah. those made a big difference. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, I remember seeing somewhere uh, as a reprint the San Jose sort of brochure. It was sort of a hand-drawn brochure as somebody on a R100 of some sort back in the late 70s or something like that. And then just uh, the array, different, vast array, uh, array of rather of uh, different aftermarket parts and bolt-on things you could, that San Jose provided at one time. And <clears throat> I, I, that's the one thing I hear so a lot about that I've never really gone through the trouble of doing it, and I have to imagine it would make a big difference, are, are the, the triple clamps. And there's a lot of different options out there. I mean, of course, you mentioned how can something not be better than the, you know, <laughs> I don't know what it is, eighth-inch steel stamp plate, however, whatever the thickness of it is uh, that comes on the yeah. bike. Have you, ever, have you ridden a bike with... Uh, a beefed up sort of triple clamp and notice the difference. Oh, oh, totally, absolutely. I, I, I had a bike. I actually still have it, but it's not in operational condition. I bought it back from somebody who wound up with it some years ago. But I had a '79 R100 RS and one of those blue and silver ones, real slick bike. And so I got that thing. When was that? Probably around. 
80, early 80s. And I was my, that was my pride and joy. And I did a lot of parts that were contemporary on, at the time. I um, had the, the swing arm brace on that bike, um, which was welded on to the because the swing arm on those on those the older swing arms from seventy up through eighty, as you know, they've got that the, the real narrow portion of the swing arm where it passes right around where the wheat the tire is, you know, they were, they were a little bit wobbly. And so had that braced and had the, uh, triple clamp and the fork brace from San Jose. And it really made a big difference in how the bike, uh, ran at, especially at higher speeds through corners. It didn't have that, that, that flex. A lot of guys used to put those frame braces on too. Um, that's something that's, we is still available actually, and that that can help to kind of with the f- the frame twist. But we used to, a lot of the little little tweaks we used to do on those bikes were kind of um, they, they did make a big difference. The, the, those they, the bikes did wobble. Now you know I wouldn't ride the way I used to back in those days on a bike like that anymore. So it's maybe not so important. But at the time it was pretty cool to be able to to um, not have a wobbly bike at about 100 miles an hour. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, I, I'm in my early 50s right now, and I imagine, <clears throat> you know, that I'm sort of, I might even be on a little bit of the young end of the age spectrum uh, of current riders. But, I, you know, these days I am a hardcore tootler. Uh, I mean, that is my, <laughs> that's my riding style. I'm really not, you know, pushing the bike or, or looking to push the bike. And so, yeah. and I can understand, especially in the 70s, um, you know, when San Jose was coming out, you mentioned the swing arm reinforcement, the frame reinforcement, the uh, triple clamp, the front fork uh, braces and all that kind of stuff. That did make for a much better handling bike and as far as performance upgrades. And it was a way to keep, I think, an airhead sort of get it up to standards uh, and feel comfortable riding at speed with other bikes and things like that. And I know a lot of those things are still available. Those are some modifications and things I've never taken to heart from one way or another. Just like I said, because I'm not really trying to push the bike um, uh, in that regard. One thing, my modifications and upgrades tend to go to maintenance items. And as I mentioned, you know, if I'm going through a bike, there are some things I'm going to change out as a matter of course. Uh, just for maybe reliability and better performance. And it, you mentioned you're kind of old school on that, and I know a lot of guys are, especially when it comes to ignition. So I'll talk about what I want to talk about is here, maybe your thoughts on why you – so if you bought – let's say you bought a 77S like I did recently, you would still keep uh, points and condenser on it if you were refreshing the bike rather than maybe going to a more modern – uh, electronic ignition like a wedge tail. I probably would. Well, I don't know much about the wedge tail. I've heard of it. Um, it's probably pretty cool with it. But but my experience also with electronic ignition goes back to um, earlier days when that was a sort of um, what I was dealing with, that sort of thing. And I saw too all too often that they it would just simply fail, you know, and then. And I, I don't uh, mention any names of the products or anything like that, but uh, they would 
it just fail, and then the bike doesn't run. And and uh, with a spare set of points and condenser, you can I think always get the bike running if if something goes wrong. It's uh, it's just simple as an anvil kind of technology. Whereas if you know you're taking the you get the electronic stuff, yeah, it might be better. You don't have the maintenance in theory as long as it works. And if it doesn't work, it's a catastrophic failure, and you need to, you need spare parts now to get it going again. So that was always my experience. And so I was the earlier electronic ignitions weren't reliable, in my opinion, and and I kind of got soured on the idea. I'm sure today there's probably something really cool, and um, yeah, I can only see that that would be uh, a benefit. Yeah, I think there's there are some performance benefits to the newer uh, ignitions, Wedgetail being one. Uh, I've installed those on all my bikes. And, you know, the nice thing about it is the components are easily interchangeable. So the ICU, for instance, uh, I've talked about this before, uh, I can pull an ICU off another bike and throw it in the uh, tool tray under the seat and have a spare ICU, uh, for instance. Oh, that's cool. You know, and it's just, it, yeah, I mean, it really is kind of a plug and play piece. Um, but yeah, and the, you're 100% right with the points and condenser. Um, it, it's easy to carry spares. It's easy to troubleshoot um, and e easy to repair uh, with an electronic ignition. Maybe even some of the older ones, whether it was a, a Boyer or a Dyna or some of the Alpha EME uh, or not EME, but Alpha ignitions that EME and uh, Rick sold at Moto Rod Electric. Those did have some reliability issues later in the uh, in the run. That's uh, you know nothing new there, um, <clears throat> but. I think it boils down to what what you're comfortable with uh, as a mechanic and just what you're used to to working with uh, when it comes to ignition. What about same thing with charging? Um, charging system. A, a lot of people have have said I've heard this. That is one of the quote unquote maybe Achilles heels on some of the older airheads. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. It might not have been the most robust charging system, but when the components are new and uh, everything's working correctly, it's fine. I think the problem comes when you start stressing the system and adding, uh, you know, heated uh, heated clothing and those kind of things. But for you, again, you're going through a bike. Uh, you would probably just be refreshing original components rather than doing a charging sort of makeover with, a, you know, something different. Is that correct? That is, that is, that's just, that's what I, I personally would do. And that, that doesn't make it right or wrong or whatever, but it's just what I would do. And I would leave it, leave it alone. Yeah. And so are, are there, let me just ask this, ask this way. And, you know, Rick at Motorrad Electric's done a great job. It I should plug his book uh, here, you know, the char charging for airhead uh, owners or whatever. I'm losing the, the title right off my top of my head here, but whatever. Uh, his book is great, but are there uh, components uh, in that charging system that, uh, that, for instance, if you've got an old bike, you've just purchased it, you don't know what the history of it is, are you going to run the diode board? It might be working, but would you uh, replace it uh, out of just, okay, let's just, let's just refresh it here? Because as you, note, as you noted earlier, sometimes new is just better than any any modification or anything like that. Yeah, you can you wanted to especially with the diode board. What's uh, depending on the model year that you have, um, 
that it's properly grounded is 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 very important to to the function. Yes, good you point. You can kind of see if it's been hot uh, from poor ground. You can kind of see if the paint's blistered on there, and maybe you know the the, the solder got hot. Maybe not hot enough to run off, but uh, you you can uh, that'll tell you a lot. If you've got the the version with the rubber mounts uh, for the diode board. Um, that those used to give a lot of problems because of, of insufficient ground. And um, so you want to make sure that the modification has been done, and if not, you do it. And what that modification was was uh, actually some real heavy-duty um, ground wires that went from the back of the diode board to solid ground on, on the timing cover. And um, there's also a solid diode board mount replacement to replace the rubber mounts that's just made out of steel, stainless steel, I believe. And you put you can put those on there, too. But the, the diode board wants to be well grounded for it to function properly and not overheat. Yeah. So that's, that's something to look at. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think maybe this is a point in the conversation where we can maybe transition a bit and say, okay, we're not maybe doing an aftermarket modification, maybe not an aftermarket upgrade, but one of the neat things about the Airhead uh, is that you can, quote unquote, go to the maybe next generation of a particular part or setup and improve it in that regard. So, and there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of ways to do that. I mean, gosh, I think of a lot of the bikes I have, <clears throat> excuse me, Think of a lot of the bikes I have. Uh, for instance, the the biggest one, and I've talked about this a lot, is um, the front suspension on my uh, first generation uh, R80 GS. Uh, I basically just swapped mm -hmm. it out for the uh, uh, nine or 88 on uh, front end, and it made a it was a big improvement. It's not original, oh, not original to the bike. But you can look at it, and aside from, you know, sort of the way, I guess, the brake calipers oriented and maybe the length of the forks and things like that, you, it's not like you're bolting on a, a motocross, uh, you know, or DR60 front end and changing the look of the bike. You're adding uh, some improvement uh, and functionality to it, keeping a BMW part on there and maintaining sort of the look and, and uh, the classic styling of it. And I imagine maybe that's something, I, I think I've seen you do that, or that's something you probably do as a matter of course, maybe on, on a lot of bikes, rather than going with an aftermarket component or, or modification, is just using uh, the later version of something. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, a, that's certainly another way to do it, to keep, to, just to kind of keep it all somewhat original, at least with BMW components, upgraded in that regard. Is it? Yeah, I, I mean, you can, and there are places you can do that. I mean, you, for for instance, I suppose, uh, even with the transmission, um, of course, you have to keep in mind, you know, I guess once you get to 1980 or, or and uh, onward, 81, whatever it is with the flywheel or, or uh, non-heavy flywheel. Um, but, for instance, I guess you could put on, let's say you had a 74 R90S, well, with the problematic sort of, that was the first year of the five-speed transmission, you could go back and put in a 78 uh, you know, or later model transmission in there. Now it doesn't have the same housing and not the same smooth casing, but 
that's good to know that you can sort of go to a later uh, edition of that transmission and just and pop it in there. That's that's another example. Yeah, that's a great example. That's a perfect example. Are there, again, you know, when you're doing this uh, off the top of your head, or I'm just wondering, are there some things that you would think to do in that regard when you're going back and refreshing a bike or maybe a customer has brought a bike in or, you know, you're doing a repair and and think, okay, gosh, you know, uh, with the dial, we mentioned the dial board. I mentioned the front end. Or, or I'm just wondering, are there a couple other things that, that come to mind in that regard to, to modernize uh, to a later version? Yeah, the one of them is that the old uh, breather valves. I think a lot of them have been oh, changed yeah. already. But uh, yeah, uh, so that the old one was basically a, a like a fiber disc on a post with a with a spring and a little little circlip on there, and it would just kind of bounce up and down. And then later on, they got rid of that and put in a, a reed valve, and it's easy enough to change that out. And um, it. Um, yeah, it it makes a difference in, in in the way the bike runs a little bit, but also there's a funny noise that the old ones would would make, kind of a blurping sound, and the um, so that that's 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 a, I would always change that part out on any motor. If I see that old one, that that breather valve is out of here, I'm putting the, the breather valve in. That's <laughs> always the thing we do. That's a yeah. great one. And I've got a kind of a funny anecdotal story here uh, about that. So. <clears throat> I bought uh, a number of years ago, I bought a 75 uh, R90S, and it needed a pretty good mechanical refresh. Anyway, I got it all done. I did take out the uh, old spring-type breather, put in the, the reed valve breather, and I would get it the, the that noise that we talk about. I call it a, a turkey gobble or a sort of a duck honk or something. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. It was sort of part and parcel uh, on the, it seemed, on that era of bikes, especially the Slash 6 and the Slash 7. And the retype valve, a lot of times, was the remedy to that. And so I had that on this particular, when I first bought the bike, I noticed it and just thought, okay, well, I'm going to change this out as a a matter of course when I'm doing the bike. So I put, put the new one in, started it up, and I had it it actually turned out worse. And what would happen would be when I would shut the bike off uh, and I had put that new reed valve in there, I would turn the bike off. I'd get to somewhere I was going, turn the key off and the bike would go, you'd hear the air sort of expel uh, from that breather valve. And it was, it was kind of comical, but after a while it just got kind of annoying and I didn't want to shut the bike off in front of any, anybody when I get somewhere (laughs) <laughs> it just sounded kind of silly. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. and I'm thinking, what in the hell is going on here? You know, I just replaced the valve. Um, I'm trying to, you know, am I having a compression issue? Am I building up too much oil pressure? Why is it, why am I hearing this, like, exhale? It was almost kind of like a fart, really, when I'd stop the bike. And finally, after, you know, I don't know how many different things. I was checking this, checking that, this, that, and the other thing. Finally, uh, on an adventure rider, uh, Bud Proven, who runs the Nick Wackett Garage up in Rhode Island, just said, hey, again, an anecdotal story here. He said, yeah, this happened to me years ago. I had a customer, same kind of thing. 
All he did was just drill a really sm an, an additional small hole in the top of that breather disc. He said, try that and see if that helps. Well, I just found the smallest drill bit I could, pulled the breather valve out with the aforementioned slide hammer that we discussed previously, uh, mm -hmm. pulled it out, put just drilled the smallest hole in that breather valve, reinstalled it, problem gone. Wow, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's really cool to know. That's a good one. And that was just one of those things where, you know, it was just, it doesn't affect the motorcycle, you know, it doesn't affect the performance. It was just one of those annoying things that can grate on you, especially when you don't know why it's doing it. You know, I think, William, a lot of us, if there's a rattle or a noise or something going on with your car or motorcycle, if you know what it is, it's not a problem. If you don't know what it is, then it drives you crazy. Am I right? Yeah, that's totally right. Yep, yep. <laughs> that always and there's a lot of there's a lot of nuances, of course, with these old airheads and and, and it they, the things that you just kind of live with, like the clunky gearbox and stuff like that. You know, it's like you, if you don't know that it's supposed to be that way, then you think that there's something wrong with the gearbox, for example. You know, but they that they are they 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 make noise when you shift. That's just life. Yeah. That's the drill. Well, all right, all right William, uh, that, that's going to cover our aftermarket modifications and upgrades. We'll say for the record that uh, is something you don't do a whole lot. Uh, you're pretty much a stock guy. I can appreciate that. And we all fall somewhere uh, in that spectrum of what, what works for us. And, that again, that's just the great thing about these bikes, as I mentioned at the top. You've got your options, a lot of great aftermarket parts to do to your bike uh, as you wish. And, of course, we should mention a lot of those parts uh, and maintenance items available at boxer2valve.com. So remind folks to get on the website and find everything you need for your bike there. William, as always, buddy, a pleasure. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Me too. Thanks a million. Talk to you soon. Time for our final segment of the program this week. Back to our discussion with Duck Cook from the Airheads Beamer Club. So next thing I want to get to here, Duck, is you've had some changes in in the sort of who was the editor in the magazine, board of directors. And let me just say on the outset, it's not unusual for something like that, uh, I don't think, uh, to happen in a club like this. You've got a lot of uh, people who are passionate about uh, something, whatever it is. In this case, it's motorcycles and being in the club. Uh, there are disagreements, differences of opinion, things change, people move on, and life goes on. Um, all that being said, uh, now you've got a new editor uh, for the monthly magazine. You've got a new magazine format, which is wonderful, by the way. I'm really impressed with that. In so many words, what was the impetus for, for all the, the change here recently? We had looked at the magazine and the number of complaints and concerns the membership had forwards to the board, uh, both via email and uh, in person. One thing I mentioned is that when we have these uh, these rallies, whether it's a national rally or a regional rally or even a local rally with about 20 people, board members and air marshals try to have a members forum to get feedback. Uh, ask him, you know, here's here's what's going on. What are you thinking? What do you think we need to change? And one of the biggest things that came up was the format and content of our club magazine. There seemed to be 
uh, some strain from uh, BMW motorcycles uh, into the political arena at times, uh, things that made people upset. And I understand, uh, having been in in business for many years in, in various formats, that you don't please everybody anytime. It doesn't matter what you do. Somebody's unhappy about it. Whether you're giving away free cookies or, or charging them a dollar for them, somebody's not happy about something. And But when the majority of the people are unhappy, as uh, the people who are in leadership positions need to take a look at what the complaints are and, and how they can change in a positive way. And as with any organization, things do get stale after a while, and you need to look at uh, changing things up, keeping things fresh, uh, moving into uh, the, the current, um, I hate to say century, but you know what I mean. I do, yes. From, from, from where your founder started uh, into where today's society is at. And by saying that, I don't mean that we're looking at a political agenda by any means, but just uh, things like being able to provide a digital copy of the magazine to people, um, streamlining our membership process, uh, making our club merchandise more available to the members, um, you know, just, just trying to streamline and make the operations of the club more efficient and try to meet the needs of the majority of the club members. Yeah, I, I noticed two, two things you mentioned there. So one was the format of the magazine. I mean, it, it did, it was dated. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Um, and I didn't, because of that, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, and then secondly, uh, I did notice towards the end of, uh, I guess it was B. Jan's tenure there or something. There was, uh, and again, it, it's sort of, I wasn't complaining about it. I wasn't writing letters, emailing anybody or whatever. It's just, I lost interest in it was, you know, there were some of the articles exactly didn't have, there was no real motorcycle content, or if it was, it was really thinly threaded, uh, if I'm being generous. Uh, so that sort of was a, a bit off-putting to me, but not enough where, you know, as, as a member, I wasn't emailing or complaining. I, as I said, I just found uh, other places to go other things to do. Uh, however, that's people who have been in the club for a long time. That wasn't necessarily their experience. So what you're saying is uh, you were hearing from members uh, probably more than not. We need to sort of change. And it sounds like it might have been the just the, the magazine in general. Uh, the content and the format were the biggest. You're saying those are the two uh, biggest issues you were hearing from members. Correct. Um, we, BJ Hoffman, in addition to starting the club, um, started the magazine, and and for you know twenty plus years was was the editor and obviously a major contributor to that. And uh, his efforts were greatly appreciated. Uh, recognized, uh, I say repeatedly, I am very grateful to B. Jan for starting the Airheads with Al Sloan and the other members uh, because it's a very, very big part of my life. Obviously, not just when I was uh, elected to the board and uh, became the chairman of the board, but even as a, as an air marshal and as a rider and uh, going to tech days and, and rallies and stuff, 
uh, without their vision to uh, put this together for all of us, uh, it just wouldn't be here. And, and maintaining it has been a, a tough thing, especially as we move into this day and age where uh, people are aging out of the sport. We're trying to preserve uh, the heritage of a machine that, that, you know, hasn't been manufactured since 1996. People, people are riding 50- and 60-year-old bikes here, and we're lucky that BMW still supplies parts for them or there's competent aftermarket manufacturers or these things would have gone by the wayside a long time ago. And the airhead mentality keeps this going. Uh, but in today's society, uh, we need to change with society. And this is, like I said, the biggest thing that I saw happening that we needed to change was to be able to offer a digital magazine. And what you'll probably lead into there is that uh, with the digital magazine, we no longer have our major contributor, uh, Oak Okelson. Uh, Oak, Oak was a wonderful, the guru uh, in the Midwest for this stuff. He uh, produced volumes of material enough that uh, his wife is overwhelmed with uh, what he's left behind, just kind of taken care of. Oak was a man who had many interests, and he didn't casually get interested in anything. He was into machining and, and uh, antique tractors and uh, ham radio, in addition to the airheads. And, and he's the kind of guy that explains to you not only why you torque a bolt to this foot-pounds, but what happens if you over-torque it or if you under-torque it or if you put it in wet or dry and, and things like that. But in 2014, Oak wrote a letter to the chairman of the board and the editor and very clearly defined the parameters for using the material that he submitted for his text column. And that included that it was a one-time only use. That means once you publish it, you don't get to publish it anymore. And that's pretty standard in the publishing industry. It is. Uh, and, and why Oak said that, other than it being standard, uh, is up to speculation. But we think sometimes, and this is mine and other people I've discussed with opinion, is that Oak would have liked to have been like uh, Snowbum and be able to update his materials as new information and new methodology and new uh, parts come available, you'd want to be able to update that article. So if you say you can print it once, then that's what you're able to. And the other thing that Oak said in there is that he did not in any way, shape, or form give the airheads permission to print anything of his electronically for public viewing. This is kind of a gray area because if we print our digital magazine or publish our digital magazine on our website, you have to be a member to sign in there. Uh, so depending on who you want to talk to, if we put Oaks material in the print and the digital magazine and only made it available to members, yeah, we're, we're technically abiding by his uh, wishes. But we would rather err on the side of caution, continue to work on getting permission to publish things digitally than go the other way and uh, have Mrs. Oak and, and uh, the other heirs of that estate upset uh, that we're using the material in ways it wasn't intended. So in essence, we don't have permission right now to publish Oak's material. 
we'll continue to hope and work on getting that material someday or that permission someday. Um, and certainly we miss it. And it was a big draw for the magazine. That's currently the biggest complaint we have about what Road Wolf Designs, Chris Parker, are doing is that Oak is not in there. Uh, we have had plenty of competent people step up to fill that gap at, uh, and provide uh, solid technical articles and material. But uh, Oak was Oak. He had his own way of writing. He was a very detail-oriented guy, just like Snowbomb is. And uh, he's missed. Yeah. But that's where it stands right now. That, that, thank you for explaining that. That makes a lot of sense. I'll just add this. Um, not having the ability to put it in today's format, I think it has uh, those articles and everything he worked on and put together. I think there's a danger of it uh, in some ways becoming irrelevant and forgotten uh, without being in a, a modern format. Not to say it will happen, but it could. Well, we had, I myself, on behalf of the board, have been in communication with, with Oak's widow, Mrs. Oak. Um, indicating that the Airheads Club would like to become the caretaker of Oak's material, whether it was published in the air mail or not. But as I had mentioned, he left behind volumes of material uh, that would really have to be sorted through before you could make a decision of what was relevant to to uh, Airheads specifically and what, what is not, and where there's overlaps. I mean, obviously, if he's a machinist, uh, there's overlaps between what he had for uh, notes and, and writings on machining uh, that would pertain to airheads, but also would pertain to airheads. And it's, it's, it's a real gray area, that is, and, and uh, we hope someday to be able to bring that back. Yeah, yeah. I, I, hope, I hope so, too, because, as I said, there's without it being in an accessible format today, especially as... The years go on, the harder it is for people to access that and the less relevant it becomes. Also, uh, there are any other number of sources where folks can go these days, whether it's a forum, uh, you mentioned Snowbomb or elsewhere to get information. Not that it's the same. I'm not drawing a comparison or saying they're equal, uh, better or for worse in one way. But again, uh, I, I hope you can can make that come around and, and get the availability of that to a wider audience. A uh, couple other things I want to talk about sort of club-related. Um, with this, you mentioned the Oak's not, uh, material's not in the magazine anymore. BJAN is gone. There's a new editor. There's a new format. You had to expe expect some pushback from members on this, but I wonder if you were surprised how passionate and personally some people seem to have taken to the changes? As with any change in their organization, there are people that aren't happy. There are people, uh, and, and B.J.N. used to write the Luddite Screed, where he talked about people who like things just the way they've always been. And in any organization, any even a community, a church, any place, there are people who like things just the way they've always been. And, yes, there were some people who were very passionate about the changes that the board made, and uh, we received quite a bit of, of mail regarding that, emails, uh, both uh, from, uh, from people who were, were not happy about the change uh, and people who felt that the change was necessary. 
Um, the majority of the people find the new format refreshing. Uh, they like the magazine, uh, and uh, they're happy the change has been made. Uh, again, there's no ill will toward B. Jan and what he had done for years as the editor. Uh, we're grateful for him to start having started the club and maintained it and worked very hard to maintain the club through lean times. He's passionate about what he does, just as his supporters are passionate about him and supporting him, and I admire that in them. Um, but I'm hoping we can continue to grow as a club and, and bond back together with the common uh, mission of maintaining and preserving these old machines. I guess the dust has settled a little bit, somewhat, since all this has happened. Have you seen uh, some folks returning to the fold, um, coming back under the tent, so to speak? You know, it's, that's, that's, that's a hard variable to judge because we have people who were gone who have come back. Um, we have people who have said that because of the changes, they're not coming back. Uh, but to be able to actually say this person left for this reason or mm -hmm. this person came for that reason, unless they specifically tell you, 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 don't, you, can't, you can't number that. Um, I, I know there are people that are very unhappy and they're not going to renew, uh, and that's, that's their choice. I'm sorry I was hoping that uh, we were hoping that the club was going to offer enough that it would be worth their, their money every year to uh, continue to be members. It, but I'm passionate about things, too. And when you're passionate about things, you sometimes vote with your wallet and your feet. And that means you quit paying for it and you move on. Yep. And, and I can understand that. Uh, so, and, and I wish everybody the best of luck. But I do hate to see anybody leave because every member has something to contribute, uh, even if it's just going for a ride or having a cup of coffee. Um, and I hope that the club can continue to contribute to these members in some small way through the magazine or through events uh, or just being a support for their old machine when they need it. Yeah, I, I bet, Duck, one thing you all have talked about, and I think this ties into a lot of the things we've been discussing here uh, in the past few minutes, is how does a club like the Airheads, Beamer Club, any club, motorcycle, uh, that is basically comprised of aging men stay relevant and maintain membership? Well, that's the struggle we're having now, yep. just like many other clubs, is, is maintaining membership. Uh, our bikes don't really appeal to a younger generation when we get down into, uh, you know, 18 to 25-year-olds. Uh, they're not really relevant to the 26 to 35-year-olds, but we're hoping that we can appeal to the people who are starting to have uh, some disposable income uh, they're steady and secure in their job. They're looking for either another another hobby uh, or picking up motorcycling. Uh, again, they might have had a motorcycle in high school or in college or maybe till they had a family, uh, maybe appealing to the vintage and antique market. Uh, all of us can't go out and buy an old panhead and expect to ride it halfway across the country to uh, sit around a campfire with somebody. But you and I both know you can do that with an old airhead at a very reasonable fee. Indeed. Uh, you know, 
and uh, that's kind of uh, one of the, the target audiences we've, we've looked at. And if you've noticed in the magazine, we're also uh, trying to show the uh, people who are making bobbers uh, out of the old airheads that there's a place for them at the airhead table, too. Sure. Uh, we're not all tourists. They, they don't have to have every single stock item on them. Uh, and we're looking at some, some great uh, technology that's been uh, introduced in the last few years, uh, electronics, uh, lighting, um, you know, carburation, uh, things like that, charging systems, real upgrades that will keep the old machines on the road dependably for much longer. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this a lot um, in these conversations. I think anybody who's uh, maybe 50 or older, 60 or older, uh, and is sort of critical or poo-poos the cafe racer or bobber scene, Tell me you never made or rode a chopper in the 70s. I don't know that it's that different. It's a different style, yeah, but the concept uh, is similar. And maybe there are guys who never did uh, chop up a, a Triumph or a Harley and uh, put ape hangers on it when they were younger. But it's just it's just a generational thing. I don't care for them, but uh, I don't have really strong feelings about them uh, one way or the other. And to the younger members, you know, when you mentioned how it can be difficult or you're really not even trying to appeal to those under 30. Uh, I think in, in some ways, Duck, the club just needs to hang around till people that age get a little bit older and these motorcycles start entering their radar screen. Uh, and so, yeah, the guy who's 30 right now might not be an ABC member, but 10 years from now, maybe so. You know, you, you just never know. I know when I first bought a motorcycle uh, or bought an airhead, I joined the MOA. But back then, it was because that's where you could find uh, a flea market and find parts for sale, motorcycles for sale, things like that. That was the way to get into the, that marketplace and, and meet those people and find those things. It's a lot different, obviously, today uh, in that regard. Um, I, again, talking about the membership and the, and the younger folks, I imagine, too, that's a conversation and probably uh, don't want to say a heated one, but one that's been um, brought up a lot is the club's role sort of serving current members, maintaining the wishes of the current members versus doing things differently to go out and recruit either new and or younger members. Is that still something you're discussing and, and trying to wrap your head around? It is, because as I said, the, the bikes themselves, they're not flashy. They, they don't make a lot of noise. They don't appeal to really younger people. Uh, so how do you draw them in? And, and that's, uh, like I say, the bobber scene is, is one starting point. Uh, another area is we're starting to see some multi-generational ownerships. Oh, yeah. Where, where somebody says, hey, you know, I got this old motorcycle out of my grandpa's barn, and he said I can have it. And and it's really cool. And he rode it back in the 60s or the 70s, but I have no idea where to start because I haven't seen a BMW motorcycle dealership in, in my travels, which, you know, is another thing that uh, – kind of handicaps BMW bikes is they're kind of low-key in their dealerships, even though we're not selling airheads out of dealerships. But the, the thing is that the brand identification is low. It's more for four wheels than two. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I can, I can tell you, Duck, uh, in this format, in a podcast format, of course, we get, uh, I hear from a lot of uh, listeners who are sort of probably in the median age uh, of airhead owners. But I'm also hearing from a lot of younger guys. And in that generational ownership category, which I hadn't even really thought about uh, as, a, as a category, but it sure is. Uh, I've heard from a lot of guys who are probably 40 and under who have, uh, you know, gotten a, yeah, grandpa's bike or maybe even a little bit younger. It was their dad's uh, motorcycle that, that they have now. And they're, and I get notes from them. Hey, this, I enjoy the podcast. This is a great, uh, great way for me to get to learn more about these bikes now that I, that I own one. So there you have it. You know, we're, we're reaching people how we can, uh, and, as I, as I mentioned before, modern formats are where you're going to reach younger kids or younger owners. I don't think there's real uh, any argument there about that. No, I don't think so either. No. All right. So let's uh, start to wrap this up. If you've listened to the program before, um, I've got a few things I'd like to ask everybody. Uh, get Get your take on some sort of the four big questions that we asked. So, Duck, for you, uh, if you were to carve up the Mount Rushmore of airheads, four bikes, color, year, model, what might those be? Well, I'd have to put my own passion up there, which is uh, a, a early toaster, uh, 71, 72 toaster tank bike. Uh, and um, I think you'd have to have an RS up there, a 77 model would be, Pristine. Um, being a touring rider, I'd like to see a Monoshock RT up there, an R80 RT, which uh, really a lot of folks consider the pinnacle of the BMW touring bikes. They worked out all the bugs, uh, had the smoothest motor and things like that. Um, and then I guess my final choice, um, I'd really like to see an R69S up there because it's really the granddaddy of, of a lot of these airheads. Um, and uh, I think it deserves a place in the airhead realm of machines. Yeah, even it's not a two four seven proper, but you're right. It was the it was the predecessor. Um, okay, so you've been around these bikes long enough to know that there are some, as with anything, there are some design flaws, some things uh, the designers uh, engineers did that we've all collectively scratched our heads about. I'm sure you've come across these more than once, retching on your own bike and others. So uh, what would either one big one or a couple little ones, a couple things, if you could go back in time, change a design element on the 247, what would that be for you? I think the biggest improvement I could see is the instrument clusters. Um, hmm. Not the slash fives, but uh, the later models. Uh, the odometers quit working. The tachometers quit working. They uh, they end up uh, the the lighting is terrible. Thank you, Cat Dash, for improving that whole situation. <laughs> yes. Um, in all the good German engineering, somehow that whole situation has failed us. That's a good point. Uh, you're the first one to bring that up. I don't. It's rare I've had an airhead that I've not had. A, Pedometer or d odometer repaired. Yeah, I mean that's 
that's why a lot of these guys stay busy and stay in business all the time. So kudos to you, Duck, for bringing that up. That's one that has not been mentioned. So well done. Uh, okay. Your best or worst roadside breakdown and or repair. So the best way to think about this is something happened on a bike. You did a great MacGyver duct tape something, got back on your way, or conversely, you broke down and had to throw in the towel? Well, that will require a little bit of thought. I've been pretty lucky in my travels of not having to come in on a trailer or in the back of a truck ever that I remember. Really? Yeah. uh, I know that sounds odd for as many miles as I've got, but I've been pretty lucky in that respect. It seems to transfer into my four-wheeled vehicles too so uh let me think here what about Uh, what about a a friend of yours you were riding with uh or an experience that you may have heard of well we did have a fellow whose front wheel bearing went out on his st along the road uh and when he took it out he happened to have uh we were going to a tech session he happened to have wheel bearings with him uh so we were alongside of uh, i think i-77 uh, changing a front wheel bearing with traffic whizzing by on a hot afternoon, and he dropped the bearing. And as sometimes happen when you drop something, you you move quick to see where it went, and instead he cooked, kicked it into the weeds. <laughs> oh, Lord. Here we are with one good bearing, one missing bearing, and a set of bad bearings, and when we finally found it, it was coated in sand. And we ended up washing it out with uh, water and uh, Gatorade and <laughs> greasing it up with spline grease where we had pulled the rear wheel off. And he made it the rest of the way to redo the repair. But for a bit there, we thought we were going to have to find somebody to come get us. Wow. It was a hodgepodge of putting together uh, this bearing to get it back in this bike and get on the road. Wow. Duck, that's a great one. I'm glad I prodded you a little bit on that. So, gosh, who has not been there? You're in a sort of stressful situation like that. You're on the side of the road, trucks, cars whizzing by, or just wherever. could even be in your garage. You drop a part, go to look for it, and I'll be damned. You spend the next 35 minutes looking for something that you just had in your hand two seconds ago. Yep. Man, that has got to be one of the most frustrating things. Very creative, though, um, using some uh, lube from the uh, rear drive uh, on there. I had a, hey, I had a front wheel bearing uh, fail on a uh, first generation GS. So, same bearing setup. I was on I 40 headed to Memphis. Uh, I was not fortunate enough to have uh, brought bearings. So, that was, that's been my one. Uh, I had to call call my wife and uh, she came in the pickup truck so there you have it uh okay silly question i know but we're asking everybody this duck what's the oil you run in your airhead <laughs> uh, i run uh, bell ray oh really yeah uh okay so 20 is it a 2050 blend i'm not from not familiar with the bell with the bell rays 20 20- 2050 mineral. Oh, synthetic. I'm sorry? Uh, so you're uh, mineral oil, a uh, regular oil, not synthetic. Right, not synthetic. Yeah. Out of semi. 
synthetic, a, a straight mineral. Yeah. Okay. Giant oil, like you tell me. Um, uh, part of it is I'm a dealer for it, but I've always had good luck with it. Um, I get uh, it. It does what it's supposed to do. I don't think it breaks down um, under high heat conditions, like when you're riding in traffic and stuff. Um, but that's that's my airheads. So my other bikes, I run you know different oils depending on the machine. So, but that's my go-to for an airhead. And if you bring your bike here and get it serviced, unless you tell me you want BMW oil, uh, that's what you get in it. Interesting. So you uh, first on the board with the Bell Ray oil uh, after all these interviews. So congratulations for uh, getting something new up there. Uh, I have to say the most the most popular one to date, uh, hands down, has been the Valvoline VR1. Uh, that just seems to be the, the general consensus uh, or the most uh, I hear from everybody. So, all right, Duck. Well, look, uh, excellent conversation today. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate all you do. Uh, with the Airheads Beamer Club. I uh, hope to cross paths with you somewhere at some point, hopefully a super tech if you're going to be at one of those. Uh, you mentioned Vintage Motors LLC, not really open as a shop anymore. That's uh, more of a hobby shop for you. But folks want folks want to get in touch with you uh, for any reason, uh, talking Airheads, talking motorcycles, club business. Uh, easiest way to get you is how? Uh, usually an email is the best thing, duck at vintagemotorsllc.com. Uh, of course, all of my contact information is in the airmail, uh, in the air marshal list. Um, and uh, Vintage Motors LLC is really our LLC, our parent company. Uh, the shop operates under the motorcycle store. Uh, oh, okay. So where if you Google us in Oglethorpe, that's probably what would come up. Uh, we do have a regular... Uh, retail store where I stocked uh, oils and filters and tubes and, you know, all the other decals that people need, uh, not just for airheads. Uh, I am an authorized BMW parts reseller, and I have a bit of stock on hand. And I've got a ton of used parts um, that I've always hoped would turn into uh, motorcycles as I put them together, but that doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> okay. All right. So somebody may be looking for a pipe for an old uh, airhead or a uh, vintage Japanese cruiser or something like that, they can uh, drop you a line too. All right, Duck. Well, look, once again, I appreciate the time. We nailed it just a bit over an hour. We got all the questions in. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. I appreciate being on the program. That's a wrap for the program this week. Thanks to our guests, William Plam and Duck Cook. As always, we appreciate you spending some time with us. Until next time, so long, everybody. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.